Hello, this is Pastor Ryan Brown, and you are listening to the Aroma of Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Let's get started. Our scripture reading for this Father's Day week is Galatians 3, 22 through 4, 7. This is a passage that beautifully speaks of God adopting us, and it particularly talks about the change of the ages in regard to those who were under the law and under a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, and then those of us who now, having believed in Jesus, are no longer under a schoolmaster, but full receive the full benefits of adoption because Christ was born of a woman and born under the law becoming a curse for us who have broken the law and thus are worthy of a curse and allowing us to have life through him that does include eternal life but starts with being able to access the Father now. Let's be reminded of this beautiful understanding of how God has adopted us into his family. Galatians 3 verse 22 But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, deferreth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. you would, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. It's amazing how quite often the Lord just works to coordinate things together that weren't directly intended by any human. Mike spoke today about trusting God as our Father and even trusting His discipline And then we have God of the mountain and God of the valley. That song there to remind us he's still good and he's still trustworthy even when things are going rough. And that's the main point of our sermon today as well. God is still good 
even when things don't look like it. We have up to this point in the book of Matthew seen a lot of Jesus' miracles. And he just finished speaking to the twelve about persecution that they are going to experience as they serve and as they tell the message of the kingdom and the message of the gospel to those around them. And now after that persecution, encouraging fear of God and not man, faith in God and not man, he now turns his attention to a narrative section. And Matthew's narrative section is going to show us in chapters 11 through 12 who does and who does not accept Jesus and how that might actually be a little bit surprising. And I'll focus on the Pharisees' rejection of him. But it begins with a question by John. A question by John that is based off the fact that he's kind of confused by the persecution of chapter 10 that he himself is already experiencing. That question is Matthew 11, verses 2 through 3. Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Father, I do ask that you would help us today. Help us to to recognize that Jesus is the one who was to come and is the one who will come again. And help us to be reminded that he and you are always good. That you will bring all things to pass. And you will vindicate your people. Help us to know that the persecution is itself a a good thing being worked for our good. And that it is temporary because you have designed it to be temporary, to be the the suffering before we come into your kingdom. Thank you for this, Lord. Guide what we think and say. Let your spirit apply this truth and turn it into faith. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a certain singing, songwriting community. We've mentioned the spits and pieces of it before here, but there's a certain Christian singing, songwriting community in Nashville where the artists will tend to go on tours together and they all go to the same church. None of them are particularly famous and only one of them could even be heard on Christian radio not just within the last five years. But the point, the thing that happened, is in 2017, a tragedy hit this community. Not directly one of the artists, but one of their mutual friends that was encouraging them and helping them out in all of these things. Young couple. Husband and a wife expecting their first child. It's supposed to be a joyous time where the three of them can rejoice together But though the child was born safely, the mother passed away. 
didn't survive the labor. It became instead a, a time of tragedy and rejoicing together. A time of lament and concern. A time in which one's faith would begin to be doubted. Now the faith of this now father actually inspired two different songs. Because this first response with tears in his eyes when he looked at his wife's dead body. Always good. The Lord is always good. Profound pain and profound faith. And not just faith in an abstraction that there is a new creation coming or that she would rise again, but in the goodness of God, even in one of the worst of moments. So we turn our attention to our passage. We're not just talking about human suffering generally. We're talking particularly about persecution on behalf of Christ. And it might be profoundly painful, but we too should be able to have a personal faith, and that is a faith in the person of Jesus, that he is always good. That he is with us, comforting us, and will make all things right. Rejection and persecution of the messengers does not invalidate the message. Does not make God any less good or powerful. So we endure and keep faith. As we go through verses 2 through 19 today, we have three scenes. And the first scene is verses 2 through 6. And it's Jesus' understanding of his own ministry. Starts with that question, which we've already read. Now when John had heard in prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? So we've heard that John was imprisoned before. But now we we hear it again, that he is in the prison, and he's hearing about the works of Christ. The works of Christ are the very things that demonstrate Jesus' identity, that allow him to be identified with the revealed messianic portrait. But John here who has already, in fact, identified Jesus as the coming one, whom John needed to be baptized of, the one that is mightier than he. Matthew 3, 11-14. Now things are different. Now he has his doubt. Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? The only change in John's situation is that he's no longer baptizing by the Jordan, 
The rejection he got then has now turned to direct persecution, and he is imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, the message of the kingdom that he has been proclaiming. So now he has the season of doubt. And it does make sense. Not only because when we are in difficulties and and struggles of hardship, that's more likely when we're going to have trouble believing that the God of the mountain is the God of the valley too. But it also makes sense because John knows that the kingdom that he's saying is near is a kingdom of justice and righteousness in which wicked are punished. Yet instead he's imprisoned by someone who is wicked. He sits back and wonders, where is that vindication? Where is that judgment that is to come? And we ought to be encouraged by this, that while seasons of doubt are still not a good thing for Christians to have, we shouldn't just linger in our doubt as long as possible. We should push past it to faith. We also should be reminded that if John the Baptist can have a season of doubt, it is normal, maybe even expected, for Christians to struggle at times. And it shouldn't be something that we feel ashamed of or feel like, well, if I'm doubting, maybe I'm not even truly a Christian in the first place. It may not be good. It is normal. And it's something that with the help of those around us, we can be encouraged by. And here, Jesus is the one providing that encouragement. John had sent two of the disciples, asked this question, and Jesus responds in verses 4 to 6. Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Jesus' response is not to directly say, yes, I am the one to come but to give the verbal words to indicate that that is the case by pointing the disciples to his actions. These disciples of John are to tell John what they are seeing. He doesn't just leave them in the dark about what particular actions to speak about, but then says it in verse 5. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. These are statements that show Jesus' power. They also imply a bit about his goodness. As we looked at in chapters 8 and 9, the power that he has, he's using in order to help people with various problems. The blind are seeing. The lame are walking. The deaf are hearing. There is more that is being directed and pointed out, though, as well. 
these ones that you can already see mapped on, and if you look at the handout in your bulletin, the insert there, you can see them more clearly. These things that in Matthew 8 and 9 have already been expressed and shown that Jesus is doing also correspond to passages in Isaiah that either speak of the coming Messiah or the coming Messianic age. They demonstrate, yes, I am the one to come. Because here's the portrait that Isaiah paints of what the one to come will look like, and I match it. And so you can directly identify me as such. Now you will notice in the handout that lepers being cleansed is not included and not found in Isaiah directly. Commentator R.T. France suggests that this whole point is to show that Jesus' ministry not only meets, but exceeds the messianic scriptural models. And it's even better than was predicted. But yet there's still more. Paints the picture, makes it clear that Jesus is the one to come. But if indeed John's question is, in light of the persecution I am currently experiencing, where is the coming judgment? Is it still coming? It's significant to note that each of these passages deal with judgment in the immediate context. If you flip to the back of the insert, you can see Isaiah 26, For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish. Sixteen verses before the prophecies that are fulfilled in Isaiah 29 is a judgment oracle saying God pronouncing judgment upon Jerusalem. Isaiah 35, Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Even God with a recompense, he will come and save you. Perhaps based off of its use in Luke 4, one of the more popular ones, in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed him, not just to preach good news to the poor, but to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. The vengeance, the vindication, it's delayed. It's not coming as Jesus is talking right now, but if John is worried about when it will come or whether it indeed will come, he says, look, my actions demonstrate that I am the one who will bring both salvation to those who believe and punishment to those who don't. The one who has imprisoned you, I will take care of him in time. Trust me and wait. Which then Matthew eleven six pulls out. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Within the book of Isaiah, it is developed that the opposite of being offended or to stumble at the stumbling stone is to believe. It's to believe in that stone so that he becomes the cornerstone rather than a stone of offense. So yeah, 
if you're struggling here, if you're thinking, where is the vindication, or will this suffering actually end, believe that Jesus will make things right. Don't continue to stumble, but believe. Now, to some of you, it may not be a matter of continuing in faith and faithfulness in regard to the persecution that's coming. It, it might be a matter of believing in the first place. That you are offended at Jesus, tripping at him, finding him to be a stone that would ultimately destroy you because you, you don't want to admit that you need help. Or you don't want to believe that he rose from the dead. Don't stumble at him. Believe in the gospel. Believe that you are a sinner, that you've done wrong, and that God would be right to punish any of us. But he instead punished his son. And believe in his son that he rose from the dead and that that would be your hope to not be punished but to live. Don't stumble, but believe. At this point, Jesus transitions, continues to kind of talk about persecution and the fact that it doesn't limit the message and truth of the message by articulating about John's ministry. And so in verses 7 to 15, we see Jesus' understanding of John's ministry. And it begins by him talking to the crowd and trying to figure out what they wanted to see. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. But what went ye out to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. Jesus begins to ask, really presses into asking, what did you go out into the wilderness when you went out to see John? What was it that attracted you to him? And he gives two obviously false examples. Did you go out to see a reed shaken with the wind? Now, in a literal sense, this would be no sight at all. A reed is a piece of wilderness vegetation that would often shake in the wind. But it also wouldn't be worth looking at if it was describing a person in a figurative way. If John was a fickle person who was blown by the wind turning whichever way, as some might even conclude from the fact that he's questioning now whether Jesus was indeed the one to come. If that was who he was, that wouldn't be a sight worth seeing either. So he couldn't have been a reed shaken in the wind. Maybe they went out to see one clothed in soft clothing. But that you wouldn't expect in the desert. Nor do you find it in John. His clothing is of camel's hair. 
And he is firm and faithful. So it comes to the conclusion that the what they came out to see was a prophet. And then Jesus gives his own understanding. Not just a prophet, but more than a prophet. The next four verses indicate his understanding of John's ministry and why he is certain that John is indeed more than just any prophet. Verse 10. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before my face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. He is not just another prophet, but he's a prophesied prophet. One who is specifically predicted as coming, and most significantly, as coming close to the time in which Christ does. He is the one who can most clearly identify Jesus because he's contemporary with him. They, as you can see in this interaction right here, they live at the same time. Unlike the rest of the prophets, his role is not just to reveal Christ, describe what the Christ would be like, but to identify him as a particular person. This man, that is who you're looking for. continues in verse 11. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is high praise of John. Of those born among women, there is none greater. But then there's the question and a difficulty in interpretation as it shifts. He that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. We will start by simply saying two obvious things that it doesn't mean. This is not trying to imply in any way that John isn't saved. We should expect to see him in the new creation. Nor is it saying that those who are in the kingdom of heaven are not, in a literal sense, born among women. That would then leave no opportunity for us to enter in. Because everyone in this room was born among women. But as Galatians 4.4, 4, as we read in scripture reading, gives indication, Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law. Those born among women are those born in the old age, underneath the Mosaic Covenant. And John himself is a herald of the new age, but he dies before the new age fully comes. And so he's not in it in that sense. That means 
us who are part of that new age are better than John the Baptist, and it seems that we should say it's for the same reason that John was more than just a typical prophet. We have more ability to point to Jesus as the Messiah than John did because we've lived and seen his death and resurrection. We have more of the picture than just his miracles and the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecies. We have the entirety of the identification, including his death and resurrection. And so we should use that more boldly and proclaim Christ and point to him. But we're losing sight of the point. The fact that John comes at the turn of the ages also begins to explain why we can still trust God in the midst of persecution or any suffering. Why John can still trust. As verse 12 continues, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by course. During the life of John, when Jesus' ministry begins, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. You can hear the same word being used, it's the same root in the Greek, one as a verb, one as a noun. What's difficult is that the verb usually has a positive meaning, forcefully entering, that the noun normally has a negative meaning. Most translations then decide that it's best to just take both as negative, that it's then the kingdom of heaven is suffering violence, and the violent are taking it by force. At least one translation, and D.A. Carson, want to argue that we should allow there to be a paradox and a wordplay, where both are allowed to have their natural meaning, where the point becomes the kingdom of heaven is forcing its way in, but the violence are taking it away. As in, the kingdom is coming because here the king is heralding it and proclaiming it and about to inaugurate it with his death, but as it comes, it's also suffering violence from violent men who are opposed to it, who are trying to take it away, who are trying to break it apart. And thus the persecution itself that Jesus here comments on doesn't mean the kingdom's not forcing its way in anymore. It doesn't mean that you have questions as to whether Jesus is the one to come or whether he will make things right. He has decided to separate the year of the Lord's favor and the vengeance of our God. And that he did partially so that those who are persecuting it now could become its members later. Like what will happen very powerfully in Acts 9 with Saul persecuting the church, then becoming Paul as God speaks to him, changes him, 
and writes many books of the New Testament. John, as turn of the age, means we should expect the persecution, but ultimately should expect that there is a coming vindication that God will work out. Verses 13 to 14 continue. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you will receive it, this is Elias which was to come. Verse 13 seems to particularly give the reason for that part that the kingdom is coming because the law and the prophets, or rather the prophets and the law, switching the order around, making sure we realize that Moses' Torah prophesies as much as Isaiah. But then it prophesies, including to the time of John, but now something new is coming. That which is prophesied is entering in. And indeed, he is Elijah, which was to come. The Malachi 4, 5-6 description of the Malachi 3, 1 already quoted passage. The Elijah-like prophet who would make the way of the Lord. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus concludes that particular section in verse 15. Anyone who can hear must hear. Eternity thus stand in the balance. The message of the gospel is more than life and death. And we who are the ones to proclaim it must realize that the persecution doesn't change God's goodness or what Christ will do. The judgment is coming. The vindication that John desires is coming, but it's delayed. Not willing that any should perish. But this whole section is indeed more than just reminding us that the persecution of chapter 10 doesn't and shouldn't change how much faith we have in Jesus' future work. It also does introduce the section that focuses in upon the Pharisees' rejection. And that's where Jesus turns in verses 16 to 19. With Jesus' understanding of his generation. But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced, and have mourned unto you, and ye have not lamented. Yet this picture of children playing around not a bad thing. But they're calling out to the other children and it seems they're in a lose-lose situation. The children can comment about how they have, uh, how they have piped, they've played the flute in a joyous tune, and yet there was no dancing. 
that turn it around and they decide, okay, we'll mourn for you, we'll sing you a lament, but there was no weeping. No matter what they do, it doesn't seem like it matters. The others are simply going according to their own tune. We can probably relate to that in our day, as have it your way is more than the slogan for Burger King. There's no direct winning. My natural response to this is to think that the generation is the one who's calling out and that John and Jesus are the ones who aren't responding. But it reads just as well the other way. That John is the one singing a lament and no one's responding, calling for mourning over sin and no one wants to repent. And Jesus is the one piping and wanting them to dance in joy of the fulfillment of the kingdom, and yet they don't respond. But at any rate, this lose-lose situation gets applied to Jesus and John in their ministries, verses 18 to 19. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he hath a devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her children. John comes here in moderation. We'd read previously that his food was locusts and wild honey. We know that he doesn't drink any strong drink. So it seems that he's living a very moderate lifestyle. But the people who see that then say, well, the only reason he would do something so radical is if he had a demon. Jesus comes in a different direction. He doesn't eat to excess, but he does eat. He sits down and sits at meat with all sorts of people, Pharisees and, well, tax collectors and sinners. They look at the way that he celebrates with these people, how he eats with them, and they say, look at this man of excess, this man who is a glutton and a drunkard. Look at this man who would befriend such untouchables as tax collectors and sinners. John and Jesus, neither one doing anything wrong, have exactly opposite responses because the generation isn't ready to accept them. And if they accepted one, they would have to accept the other. But they refuse to be satisfied always finding a reason for the messengers to be in the wrong. And I mean, if Jesus and John are mistreated and rejected in this way, it shouldn't be a surprise when the Matthew 10 prediction is made. You too will be rejected, persecuted, by all types of people, but not all people. So keep on proclaiming. But that final line in particular is significant. But wisdom is justified of her children. 
In some translations, you would have, but wisdom is justified of her deeds. The point is much the same. Regardless of the rejection of the generation, of this wicked and adulterous generation that will not be satisfied and will continue to sing according to their own tune, wisdom is justified. Both John and Jesus will be shown to be wise. And indeed, there is a vindication that will come to all who believe. A judgment, a justice, a righteousness. It's not just an impersonal thing that it's coming at some point, but that God in Christ will make sure happens. And as he was faithful to have the blind receive their sight and powerful to do so, he will also be faithful and powerful to do the other parts as well. To bring an end to the persecution and an end to the suffering. Maybe this sorrow, this heartache, is pushing us closer than, than, than joy ever could. Maybe we too can say in the midst of any persecution or even in the midst of any suffering, the Lord is always good. Father, I do thank you. I thank you that you are always good and that you work out all things for our good. I thank you for the fact that you have delayed the punishment, that the judgment that you will bring is pushed back so that more can repent. And I pray that they would do that. And even if there are some in the hearing of my voice, that they would do so today. And I ask that you would encourage us, regardless of our situation and regardless of the persecution that may come, that you are good and that you will work all things out. And you will make all things right in the end. And I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? <laughs>